be a blank piece of paper, be a sponge. I talk about this all the time. Be open-minded and be inquisitive and be always ready to absorb and learn as much as you can from everyone around you. Hello and welcome to Conversations in Fetal Medicine, a podcast that hopes to share some of the wisdom and experience of people working in this brilliant field. My name is Dr. Jane Curry. I'm a consultant in obstetrics and fetal medicine. Think about the coffee room conversations you enjoyed with a trusted mentor. There are some great educational materials out there, especially since the COVID-19 pandemic. But as a subspecialty trainee in fetal medicine, this was the kind of thing I really wanted to listen to for inspiration and motivation when times were more challenging. We hope to speak to a range of people, some of whom you might have heard of, perhaps even your fetal medicine heroes, but also some people whose names you don't know, as it's not just about niche medical celebrity, although I do love that too. Welcome back to Conversations in Fetal Medicine. It's an absolute pleasure to be joined today by Professor Leona Poon, who is the Chairperson and Professor of Obstetrics and Gynaecology and an Academic Subspecialist in Maternal Fetal Medicine at the Chinese University of Hong Kong and Visiting Professor at Department of Women and Children's Health, King's College London, as well as having a lot of other really significant roles. Honorary Secretary of ISUOG and Editor of Ultrasound in Obstetrics and Gynaecology, just to name a couple of them. So, uh, welcome, Professor Poon. Oh, thank you, Jane. Call me Leona. And, thank you. Because uh, it's less formal and <laughs> that will help with the conversation, I'm sure. Thank you so much for inviting me to join your podcast interview. Okay, brilliant. So to start, perhaps if you could begin by talking us through your route into fetal medicine and how you've ended up doing what you do. Well, uh, so my path, actually, I would say academic fetal medicine and how mm-hmm. it happened was that uh, I just wanted to gain some ultrasound experience in between jobs during my often getting training as in the old days it's important for one to get some additional experience before getting a training number in the UK system so I decided to get a job at the Harris Birthright Centre under the supervision of Professor Kipros Nicolaitis so the rest is history and here I am (laughs) (laughs) amazing and what drew you to it so you you did it as a a way to move forward but then what, Mm. what kept you in it what drew you to it Well, during my time at the Harris Birthright, I got exposed to both fetal medicine and clinical research. And then I realized the importance of ultrasound in obstetric care. It is such a powerful tool that empowers prospective parents with information and knowledge about their babies. And of course, for us, a fetal medicine subspecialist, the ability to confirm normality in the baby is just as important as diagnosing congenital abnormalities. On the other hand, in relation to research, it was so amazing to get answers to some questions that we raise on a day-to-day basis through high-quality research. So after my three years as a clinical research fellow, I decided to pursue a career in academic fetal medicine as well as in maternal medicine. And my job is very diverse, from evaluating for structural anomalies, performing fetal intervention, screening for placental complications, managing high-risk women, both antenatally and for intrapartum care, to training our doctors and doing clinical and translational research. I really love every part of it. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, have, have you seen many changes in fetal medicine in the time you've been involved with it, in terms of maybe practices or the contexts um, you've worked in? So I think the biggest change is the quality of ultrasound machines. <laughs> <laughs> the resolution has dramatically improved and also the use of 3D ultrasound is important for assisting certain diagnoses. And now we can see much better and prospective parents are, as well as us, also expect more. So it is important for us to keep up to date and practice evidence-based fetal medicine. 
And in terms of practices, I place a lot of emphasis on the 11 to 14 week scan. Mm-hmm. It is not just for measuring chromium length and nuchal translucency thickness anymore. It is also a scan for assessing structural anatomy, placental morphology, in particular to look for suspected placenta creature spectrum disorder, as well as for preeclampsia screening. And now I also use ultrasound very readily on the antenatal ward or the labor ward, not only for assessing fetal viability and presentation, but also for measuring cervical length in the case of fresh and preterm labor, as well as for assessing labor progress to see a fetal head progression. Another point I want to make is actually genetic tests that mm-hmm. we provide now have really advanced a lot. Yeah. Um, currently, our standard test is a QF-PCR plus minus chromosomal microarray analysis, and we'll step up to do whole exome sequencing when necessary. In my practice, I have set up a dedicated fetal brain assessment clinic. So in our cases uh-huh. with fetal brain abnormalities, then we will recommend whole exome sequencing, which is available as a self-advanced test or that we can put it up for voting by a group of fetal medicine subspecialists across the city. So the test is funded by our hospital authority, which is the NHS of Hong Kong. Wow, that's that's really interesting. So you mentioned there that you obviously work in, in Hong Kong and that you had previously trained in London and, and worked in London. So what is that like? What are the differences between practice in the different countries? How has it been to work in different countries? That that must be quite challenging. <laughs> Well, essentially, in Hong Kong, we also provide subspecialty training in maternal fetal medicine under Mm -hmm. the RCOG curriculum. So essentially, I think the approach is more or less the same. But I think the biggest difference is the patients. Uh And that counselling and management obviously have to be more suitable for our local patients as there are significant cultural differences. I think prospective parents are perhaps a little bit more risk averse. They are also, I mean, um, they're more keen to have one child. So I think, yes, and with that in mind, then our counseling and management would be a little bit more, certainly would be different in comparison to my practice in the UK. Yeah. Okay. And so this is always a difficult question, but what is a typical week for you? And sort of how do you balance your clinical role with all your academic responsibilities? I would say it's not that exciting. (laughs) My typical week is not exciting at all. You wake up, you go to work. (laughs) Well, now, because of the time difference, when I get to work, I check emails from Europe. And that is super important because these emails come through overnight. Otherwise, I don't get to answer them until the evening time and then the whole day is gone. Uh Then I do ward round. I do on calls, uh, fetal medicine clinics. Occasionally, I do fetal intervention. I do have labor duties as well. And uh, I'm lucky that some of, my, some of my clinics are integrated research clinics. As I was mentioning, that I do a field brain clinic, and that is an integrated research clinic, and also do preeclampsia high risk clinic as well. And these cases are seen for both research and clinical purposes. And I think that's really helpful to me that I know that I'm doing research as well as providing a clinical service. Yeah. And when I'm not doing clinical stuff, then I could be having meetings with my research team members, clinical colleagues, international collaborators. So yeah, clinical work, research, meetings. And when I meet with my team, then we'll be looking at research data, writing papers and reports, etc. And there are some days I'm extremely happy when I get interesting results from data analysis and when I kickstart a new study in my unit or elsewhere because I also do a lot of research uh, yeah. beyond Hong Kong uh, but I do need my sleep I have to say <laughs> so I try to stop work by 11 p.m at night and how do I balance my clinical work role with other responsibilities I, I think that is really difficult 
to strike. I think that, that I wouldn't say I have a work-life balance at all. Uh, maybe I will see my research as a hobby, more of a hobby uh-huh. than a job. Okay. Yeah, that, that's a really positive way, I guess. And that, yeah, that gives you that balance. If you see it like that, that's pretty positive. If we can go back to, so when you kind of started at the with your research, starting out with your training and getting into research. Do you remember that time and how you how you really got into it? Kind of the, the first studies you worked on and the challenges and, and getting started? Actually, my memories are a bit cloudy. Uh-huh. But I still remember the day when I got called into Kipros's office <laughs> after, after spending some months in his department doing some routine scanning. Yeah. And then he asked me if I wanted to do research. And when your boss asks wow. you whether you want to do research, of course you say yes. You're not going to say no, right? You're not going to throw away your opportunity. Yeah. And uh, I was initially assigned to the progesterone trial. And obviously he also published that in the New England Journal of Medicine. And then I started with that. And after a while, I moved on to the preeclampsia project. Yeah. At the beginning, I was given the measurement of blood pressure as my project. Imagine I was only asked to do <laughs> blood pressure measurements um, for months and the funny thing was he asked me quite an inspirational question and I talk about this all the time he asked me how I should measure blood pressure I was completely thrown I was completely shocked by that question because I was like oh what do you mean you know there's a machine there's a cuff I put a cuff on and then press a button and he was like but you have two arms so how should you measure blood pressure should you measure the blood pressure on the right arm or the left arm? Actually, I didn't know the answer to that. And then, yeah. and then I started to realize that you can't take things for granted. And if you have a question, you need to find the answer to that question. And that's how I started with my project. Yeah. I went to the dungeon. I went to the RSM, <laughs> the library, deep in the dungeon, trying to figure out how to measure blood pressure. And shockingly, at that time, that was um, back in 2005, there wasn't a single protocol for how to measure blood pressure in pregnant women. And the measurement of blood pressure is so important within our practice. So that got me really interested in research. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, that's brilliant. It's, it's so true, I think, when you take that step back and ask a question, but 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 actually how and, and what does that mean? And why do we know that? I think that's, that's so true. Thinking about what's influenced you in your practice, this is almost like an interview question. It's not meant to be. It's it's really curious, my curiosity. But if there was sort of one paper or research finding that had most influenced your practice, what would it be? Then it would be for um, ASPRO work. Uh-huh. And say uh, my greatest achievement to date must be the successful development of an effective first trimester model for the prediction of preterm preeclampsia followed by proving that aspirin at 150 milligrams daily is indeed effective in preventing preterm preeclampsia amongst high-risk women. When we saw the results of the aspirin trial, it was an unbelievable moment. Yeah. Because I think we were led to believe that we were not going to succeed. (laughs) But we did. But we did. We did. That must be an amazing feeling. Yeah, very much. And then I've also implemented the Screen and Prevent program within my setting. I I truly believe that the screening model works. Fantastic. If we think then a little bit about training, how involved are you with training in in fetal medicine in your role? So whenever I have a fetal medicine session, then I would have a trainee with me. Yeah. So it could be for uh, doing morphology scan, doing a fetal brain scan, invasive procedures, CVS, amnio, fetal science. So, yeah, I, I so whenever I'm doing clinical session, then I would have a training with me. Yeah. So I'm heavily involved, actually, also on the labels as well. So mm-hmm. managing high risk pa- pa- patients for 
uh, angel palm care, as well as handling very challenging cases. Yeah. And in terms of training, do you do you have a style for how you train? You know, is there a sort of um, approach that you take if you were teaching other people how to train? How would how would you go about that? What's your approach? I think I'm a technical teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when it comes to scanning, I try not to take the hand. Yeah. I try to give very clear instructions to get to the right planes. And I think the trainees find it very helpful because the moment I take the hand, I feel like they lose interest, they yeah. lose control. So I try to make them understand the steps I, I, I tell them to do in order to get to the perfect plane that they need. Yeah. And the same goes for invasive testing as well. So again, I try not to take the hand. I try to give <laughs> instructions. And uh, I think the key when it comes to doing invasive procedure uh, is to follow the needle. And mm. I think it's always easy to look on the screen. But actually, I take the screen away. As this is actually something I learned from Kipros, is that I turn the screen away right. and make, them, I make the trainees look at the probe and the needle and ensure alignment. Then okay. we can see the screen and obviously the needle is perfectly aligned with the scan, with, yeah. the, with the probe. So I would say I'm, I'm a technical teacher, uh, yeah. a scanner. And I always say to my trainees that, is that uh, scanning is not opportunistic. <laughs> you must know the anatomy uh-huh. and therefore you know exactly how to uh, manipulate your, your probe in order to get to the images that you need. Yeah. Okay. I like that. <laughs> Um, I sort of having flashbacks to people having you know moved my hand around and we're going my brain's never going to learn that now (laughs) correct correct Um, I think taking the hand perhaps is only going to work for a real beginner yeah yeah and then afterwards well obviously the 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 trainee needs to read needs to look at images he or she must be able to recognize a normal image of a certain part of the fetus and then then you have to guide him or her through the movements and how to get to where she wants to be. So I think uh, holding the probe, taking the hand is not going to be helpful. Yeah. I try my very best not to do it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And are there any issues, do you think, or challenges for fetal medicine training at the moment? I think with the introduction of the cell-free DNA testing, uh, certainly the numbers of CVIs and amnios have reduced significantly. So I think training needs to be competence-based and we need to consider simulation training prior to doing procedures on real patients. Yeah. And I think numbers are going down and then this is something we have to overcome. And I don't know whether the RCOG is making plans for that, but certainly uh, going forward, we need to be dependent on simulation training more. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Okay. So let's um, think about the people who are just kind of starting out. They've got an interest in fetal medicine, but they're just looking at people like you, (laughs) the trainers, and thinking, gosh, how will I ever get to that? How am I going to master, like you say, the brain views, heart views, a simple amniocentesis? They they sort of worry they're not even going to be able to get that. And yet, you know, are they ever going to be able to do interventional uh, therapeutic procedures, for example? How do you counsel those starting out? Well, actually, I've already mentioned that. Um, a very simple advice, fold the needle yeah. when it comes to invasive procedures. I think that is the key. And I learned that from Kipros. You know, he really turned the screen away when we started out with our invasive procedures. And we were forced to look down on yeah. the probe and the needle and ensure yeah. perfect alignment. Yeah. Then we were allowed to see the screen. Yeah. I think with that, you can't, we can't ever go wrong going forward. Yeah. If you can find a needle, then you can do any procedures. 
Yeah. And I think, let's say, start with amnios. And I always say to my trainees, treat amnio as a CVS. Mm-hmm. You must perfect an amniocentesis before you move on and do a CVS. And if you can follow the needle from the beginning to the end, then I think you will have no difficulty with doing that in CVS. And because the number of procedures are going down, I think so. I think every procedure is so valuable. Yeah. Then and then I think great greater care has to be given to amniocentesis because I find that you know sometimes it, you you just say ah. There's massive pocket of fluids, can't go wrong with it. So it's okay not to follow the needle. But uh-huh. I think that should be the starting point. Follow the needle during an amniocentesis. If you master that, then you move up and do a CVS. And again, with the same approach, then is a lot more achievable. When it comes, and I was talking about how I would say finding the planes. Mm-hmm. Of course, you can't you can't find a, on on during a scan. You can't find the right planes if you don't know the normal images. So yeah. I think the key is that you have to read before you start. You have to have those normal images imprinted in your mind, and then then you can struggle with the technical side how yeah. to get there. And and hopefully, uh, you know, when I teach, I'll, I'll give very specific instructions as to tilting, rotating, you know, sliding, and I I, I stick to those principles. I don't think. I'm doing anything new yeah and it's actually super easy for me to take a probe but at the same time putting you know putting my hands behind my back is much more <laughs> challenging and I think for the trainees they mustn't they mustn't get worried when the trainer takes the probe mm-hmm. I think they get nervous because they feel like they're underperforming it's not true it's just that the trainers have itchy hands <laughs> it's not that we think that they're not doing a good job it's just that we have itchy hands and we get bored looking at the, the scan and so we t- <laughs> You know, jump in maybe too readily sometimes. So I think for the trainees, if the trainer takes a hand, don't think that you're doing a bad job. Mm-hmm. It's just that uh, you know, try to figure out the, mo- the the movements that we're doing instead of switching off. I see that because the moment I take the hand, the trainee switches off. Yeah, and then that defeats the purpose. Yeah, no, that's that's really helpful. So I was going to ask you, and it's quite quite a personal question, but what's what's the hardest thing for you about fetal medicine? Would you say? Um, the hardest thing must be breaking bad news. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you feel. Yeah. Sometimes I feel so sad that I cry with parents. Yeah. And so much sadness that it is hard to hold back. And I wonder whether um, it's the right thing to do. But just yeah. sometimes your emotion comes to you. You just can't control yourself. Yeah. So, but then you have to move on after one case and you have to pick yourself up yeah. and move on to the next one. And But then it's still very important to be empathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, to feel how the patient feels. I think that is important, keeping us in check. And that guides me as to how I should counsel my case as well, how, how I should counsel the patient as well. Yeah. So I think breaking bad news, I, I, I don't find it any easier today than as of 10 years ago. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for being honest about that. I think that's, that is very important. And I'm sure your patients do value that empathy. But you see, you sort of can't help it sometimes. <laughs> no. It's very challenging, and, and uh, but of course you can't kind of go crazy and cry with the with the, with the patient nonstop, you know, because yeah. you have to control the situation. Yeah, you yeah. might a little 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 teardrop, and then you just have to move on. And yeah, yes. and and the reverse of that, what would bring you the most joy? I think it has to be my research. Mm-hmm. My research, I, I feel like I have, a, I have a way forward, and that I know I have the power to improve care. 
and without yeah. research and then we'll just be doing the same over and over again and uh, of course someone else will come along and do something new but I would like to be at the forefront of yeah. generating evidence to support our practice. And looking ahead to the future you're a little bit more aware of the future than some of us because you're so involved in Isyog and editor of a journal so what do you think are going to be our, our biggest challenges um, going forwards? Well I don't want to think of the biggest challenges I think I'm sure you would agree with me that we face challenges every day mm-hmm. but I think we shouldn't be faced by these yeah. challenges we should actually take these challenges as you know a motivation yeah to be inspired to be stimulated and for me I'm pushed to do more research yeah. you know every question I'm asked I'm like okay this is difficult but how do I find an answer to this and I think obviously on a practical side then the expectation of parents of mm-hmm. perspective prospective parents could get to the point that we can't manage uh-huh. you know because it's the, the machines are getting better in terms of genetics we're doing whole genome sequencing and I don't know when we'll be doing whole genome sequencing maybe <laughs> Mark Hilby will be able to tell us that but then <laughs> somehow maybe at this point in time we are somewhat pushed or maybe we're pulled by these companies that are coming up with all of these uh, amazing tests. So I think it is very much down to us as fetal medicine subspecialists to pause, look at the evidence, look at what we have, and we need to come together and come up with a plan going forward to see how we can actually integrate all of these amazing genetic tests into our routine clinical practice. So I think an excellent example is the introduction of self DNA tests. You know, mm-hmm. right now I still believe that we should only offer the test for Down syndrome. Uh, right. And I think for trisomy 18 and 13, I can see the ultrasound features on scan. You know, I can see the abnormal features on scan uh, without the self DNA test. Uh, yeah. So sex chromosomes and employees, I'm still very doubtful, let alone microdeletion syndrome. So, but we're being pulled uh-huh. by these companies with these amazing tests in front of us. And you've got all these patients asking for these tests as well. So how do we find the right balance? And mm-hmm. now we've, we've got whole some sequencing. We have whole genome sequencing coming along. So I think... Uh, we shouldn't be dragged along. I think we should take control of the situation by being informed, mm-hmm. being inquisitive and ask the right questions and come up with strategies as to how we, we can bring everything together to provide the best clinic. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. No, I, I hear exactly what you're saying. And I, I can hear patients who are saying, oh, but they told us we could have all these these other tests. What do you think of those? And exactly as you say, we we don't know yet. <laughs> no, we can't trust them yet. Um, I'm still saying that I think the test should be done for Down syndrome yeah. only for now. Yeah, I'm all for research. If I have better data, if I have more data to support um, the use of self DNA testing for other chromosomal abnormalities for genetic syndrome, I will be the first one to take up the test. Yeah, but until we are given all the right data, all the right results, the data supporting such factors, I think we have to be the person to to safeguard the patients. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. This sound, might, might sound a bit silly, but are you a left or right-handed scanner? I do most of my scans with my left hand. Yeah, I, I was trained with Kipros, so yes, I do most of my scans with my left hand, except when I do fetal brain assessment. Oh, really? So with fetal brain assessment, I do a right-hand scan. I got trained by Professor Vizukupu from Osaka. And so actually I, I'm, I'm ambidextrous. I can also do uh, abdominal scans with my right hand, but then obviously I'm more comfortable with my left hand. 
Oh, that that has blown my mind. I wasn't expecting you to say that. That's really interesting because I, I trained in London where you have a complete mixture of right-handed and left-handed scanners and was sort of expected just to change at a moment's notice. And I'm definitely stronger on one side than the other. But I, I do value having been trained with my non-dominant hand because I think it's useful for how the right-handed scanners do invasive procedures. We use our left yeah. hand for the probe. And so I like that I, I'm more comfortable yeah. using my left hand. But I wasn't expecting you to say that you did your brain scans with your right hand. <laughs> That's uh, really interesting. Yes. <laughs> and obviously, um, I'm sure you would agree with us, with me that, I'm sure you agree with me that we we suffer from repeated strain injury. So I think yeah. being ambidextrous is actually very helpful. Yeah. And how do you how do you coordinate the room then for that? Do you have a, a separate machine set up or do you just move it around? I just move I just flip the machine around. Right. Yes. Okay. Yes. Wow. yes. It's, 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 um I would say cumbersome, uh-huh. but it's doable. Yeah. I tend not to mix my scans. So if I do a brain clinic, then I just do right hand scan all the way. Yeah. I and see. then that kind of <laughs> makes it a little bit simpler. Okay. Yeah. Um, So those are most of the things that I was hoping to ask you about, but do you finally have any top tips for people working in fetal medicine? I think be Uh non-judgmental. Sometimes I I hear people talk about a certain case and why she chose this, why she did that. And I just think we're not here to judge. We have to be non-judgmental. Of course, I I mentioned earlier, we have to be empathetic and be able to communicate effectively because we are like you know we, it's difficult to convey what we see on scan with the patients with the with the prospective parents and i think because that's my challenge when i came back to hong kong was that i wasn't able to communicate very well um okay. with, with the local language so i struggled mm. quite a bit and obviously after seven years now I'm, I'm i'm much better i think with these qualities that will allow me to strive for providing the best care and as for research i, I, I do want to just say a little bit about research because yeah. um, that features heavily in my day-to-day job uh, yeah. be a blank piece of paper be a sponge I talk about this all the time be open-minded and be inquisitive and be always ready to absorb and learn as much as you can from everyone around you I wouldn't say that because I'm a professor I've learned everything I'm learning every day I learn from my trainings I learn from my students and I encourage my team to tell me that I'm wrong Right. I love that, but of course they have they have to justify it, and then <laughs> and then okay, I might be a little bit upset in the beginning, but I listen and I, I just say okay, show me something new because we have to be well, even for us, we have to be really inquisitive in order to continue with our research, and then so we can improve care. And this is so important for fetal medicine. And and you might think that okay, you just need to do a scan and that's it. But actually, now there's so much more we can do. And you know, with my work, I'm I'm very much focusing on prediction and prevention of first pregnancy outcomes, and and that is the same for fetal anomalies as well. And that's why I've gone into fetal brain because I know I'm I'm, I'm associated with preeclampsia. But I I got so fascinated by fetal brain when I came mm-hmm. to Hong Kong. To the point I've developed the service, I've, I've developed a prediction marker for evaluating brain development. Okay. So I think I, I would say that this is being inquisitive is, is actually very important and being open-minded and ready, being ready to learn. Oh, that's fabulous. I'm feeling just so inspired just listening to you. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Um, Makes me want to uh, run off and like learn stuff and do stuff and <laughs> find out stuff. <laughs> And then people ask me, how come I stay so young looking? (laughs) 
is, is a bit of a joke of mine. I think it's because I do research. I work my brain so hard and, I, and so I'm able to stay young. <laughs> That's a great note to end on. Oh, thank, thank you so much for your time. I know you're incredibly busy and I really appreciate it. And I think our listeners will, will really enjoy listening to what you had to say as well. Thank you, Jane. Um, I think this is a great initiative and happy to be part of your, your project. Thank you. Thank you. It was such a pleasure for me to talk virtually to Professor Leona Poon, who was in Hong Kong. She was at the end of her long and busy day, but managed to find the time. So thank you so much, Leona. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations of Food and Medicine. I really hope you've enjoyed it. See the show notes for a few more details about topics we've discussed and Professor Poon's bio. Please feel free to email any feedback or suggestions for future interviewees or topics to conversationsinfeoplemed at gmail.com. And if you can, please also rate, subscribe, or even share the podcast with other people you think might enjoy it. We really appreciate all the feedback that's been shared with us so far and take it on board. We're now halfway through this first season. Please look out for the rest of the episodes. I think we've got some really great ones to come.